a picture to show uh, that is current today, but not everybody's looking at the camera, but we, at least we got all the smiles, right? And so we are so glad uh, to be here. If you're a guest, welcome this morning. Church family, thank you for being here week in and week out. If you are a guest, uh, there's some QR codes on the chairs in front of you. Uh, we would love for you to scan that. Uh, if uh, not, you can go to lpguest.com. It'll bring you to the same place. And I want to point you there this morning uh, because we want to help you get connected in the best way possible. So if you are a guest, maybe you've never gone to lpguest.com and filled out our guest information card, we would love for you to do that. And here's why. We we want to get to know who you are and figure out how to help plug you in in the places that you want to get plugged into. Maybe you're interested in kids ministry or student ministry or, or life group or anything like that. Man, if you will go to lpguest.com, click on that guest information card, fill that out. We can get you to the right person and get you plugged in fast as possible uh, in the best way possible. And my favorite part of that portion of the guest information card is at the end, if you are a guest, we have a list of ministries there that you can click on. And uh, once you click on one of those, what we'll do is we'll donate $5 in your honor, no strings attached, just to say thank you for being here. And so, guests, we encourage you to go there this morning, and you'll be able to follow along in uh, the notes that we have this morning. We'll have them on the screen, or you can use the LifePoint Ohio app. Let me give you uh, a quick catch up uh, from where we have been. So maybe you were out on vacation for spring break sometime this month or you are a guest. And let me give you just a quick summary of where we've been in this series. We're in this series called The Ascent. And in this series, we've been looking at these mountaintop moments. And I know when we usually say mountains and valleys, we're talking about like, like uh, these are just examples, metaphorical mountains and valleys. We've quite literally looked at these different mountaintop, literal mountaintop moments in the scripture, and we've been looking mainly at God's provision for his people, and in God's provision, our purpose is then established. The main point that we've been walking through over this month now is God's purpose for us is established in his provision for us, that his purpose is established in his provision, and where do we see that? In God's providing for Abraham and Isaac, that ram, that sacrifice, God then has a purpose for Abraham and Isaac that they would be uh, the progenerates, the fathers of many nations, and many nations will be blessed by Abraham himself and through his son Isaac. We would see that the giving of the law, the providing of the law on Mount Sinai to Moses shows that then we have a purpose, and the purpose is that the law is going to guide us and be our guardian until what? Jesus comes. And then last week, Elijah and the prophets, right? That God would come and he would show and that we would follow him, that we have purpose in his provision. And likely this week, we're going to talk about the same thing, that God provides and we have purpose. God provides, we have purpose I want to give you a disclaimer this morning before I, I give you my main point, because here's what I don't want you to hear as I walk through the entirety of my sermon. What I don't want you to hear is that you have to be a perfectionist or you have to be a legalist or there is all sorts of uh, works-based do-goodery that you can do to save your own self. Now, we are going to talk about some of the things that I think Christ calls us into, but what I don't want you to hear is that I have to do these things and then Christ will love me. You are undeniably loved by Jesus if you know him. Unquenchable love covers you when you walk into a relationship with Jesus. There's no amount of work you can do. There's no amount of things that you can add to the checklist for God to love you more. There's nothing you can do to make him love you more, and there's nothing you can do to make him love you less. So hear that disclaimer this morning. 
Because I don't want anyone leaving thinking today, man, I have to do more. I have to be this legalist or this perfectionist. However, I think we've been called into good works. The main point of the text this morning that I'm going to try to draw out for us is Jesus provides a way out of demise and into delight. If you're a note taker, you can write that one thing down. Jesus brings us, provides us a way out of demise and into delight. Let's break that down for just a second in the context of Matthew chapter 4. So go flip open Matthew chapter 4. That's where we're going to be the entire time. In the context of Matthew chapter 4, I think we see that Jesus provides us examples of escape from sinful demise. That Jesus provides us an example of an escape from sinful demise. And like that, also, I think he has provided us an example in Matthew chapter 4 to draw us into spiritual delight. On this mountain, we'll see that Jesus is tempted by the enemy. And that in this tempting of the, uh, by the enemy, Jesus is able to withstand that temptation and flee from a sinful demise. And like that, we can follow into that. And we'll jump into that here in a moment. But then also, we'll see that Jesus provides us an example on this mountain of good, what we call spiritual disciplines that will give us a vibrant spiritual devotional life. That we can have intimacy with our heavenly Father. And we'll see that here in a moment. If you, uh, as I've already said, opened your Bible to Matthew chapter 4, we're going to pray and then jump right in. Father, we love you. And God, we give you all glory and honor for you are worthy. God, you are holy, holy, holy. Would your word today take deep root in our heart? God, would you clear out anything in the way? And God, would the seed of your word take deep root and would it produce 30, 60, and 100 fold as your word promises? Father, as the old uh, prayer says, what we know not would you teach us, what we are not would you make us, what we have not would you give us. For the sake of your son, our savior, amen. Matthew chapter four, verse one. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Jesus was hungry. So what I think is really neat about this, and I'm going to nerd out for you in a moment, what I love is, is that the gospel writers typically do a really good job of setting up the story for us, right? Every good story has to have a plot. It has to have a setting. It has to have main characters. And I think Matthew does a really good job here by giving us the setting, giving us the context. We have main character one, Jesus. He's out in where? The setting, the wilderness. He's out there for 40 days. And then we get this second sub-character because he's no main character at all. But we get this second sub-character that we would call the devil. And later on, you would see the tempter, adversary, whatever, that he has come and he has tried to tempt Jesus. And then it gives us kind of what is happening, that he would be led out into the wilderness by the Spirit. I think Matthew does a really good job in setting up the context, but I think it's more than just giving information. I think if you were a first century Jewish listener and Matthew's gospel seems very uh, pointed towards Jews, he is trying to pull out something here for the people. Often throughout the book of Matthew, we'll see that Matthew will hearken back to the Old Testament and Jesus would also hearken back to the Old Testament, that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything Malachi to Genesis, right? Everything from then back to the beginning, that Jesus has come and he's fulfilled everything. And so as a first century listener, what they would hear is Jesus is led out into the wilderness. This is very reminiscent of the people in Israel, that in the Exodus, they would be led out into 
the wilderness. And then when they get into the wilderness, they would say that God would lead them by a pillar of cloud in the day and a pillar of fire by night. And likely, Jesus, he just says, is led by the Spirit. God is leading. They're out in the wilderness. They're out there for 40 years. Jesus is out there for 40 days. Again, a lot of similar content. And it says that testing comes upon the people of Israel, that multiple times the people of Israel are tested. And what do we see in the book of Exodus is that they fail. And yet when Jesus is te- tested and tempted here, he, he wins. He's, he, he has victory. They fail and he rises above And he doesn't fall like they do. And similar, it says that Moses on Mount Sinai, he fasted 40 days and 40 nights. And here, the better Moses, the better prophet comes to fulfill the law that was received on a mountain a few weeks ago that we talked about. And now Jesus is fasting 40 days and 40 nights. And he, showing himself the better prophet, the better Moses, it says, then the tempter comes begins to tempt Jesus. We continue on in the story. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And he said, it is written, this is Jesus talking back to the enemy. He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. I think what we see here is we see this Satan, this devil, this tempter, this adversary come and he looks at Jesus and he starts to then appeal to Jesus' lust of the flesh that Jesus is now 40 days, 40 nights hungry. And he says, you know what, Jesus, if you are the son of God, pause, he is. If you are the son of God, which he is, he says, turn these stones into bread by what? A word. Satan knows exactly who Jesus is. If you flip in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, you don't have to. But if you did go there, you would see there's this whole passage that we call the preeminence of Christ. That it says in that passage, Jesus was before all, made all, holds all things together. And so what does that mean? That he was there in the beginning when God said, let there be light. He was the one that said it. That Jesus very well could use his words to take these stones and turn them to bread. And yet Jesus' response comes straight out of Deuteronomy chapter 8. He says, no, that I'm not here for that man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that comes out of the mouth of God. I think it's interesting here that Jesus begins to quote scripture back at the enemy. And you'll see why here in just a moment, why that's important for us. But the scriptures he quotes are out of the Pentateuch out of the first five books of the Old Testament. In particular, it's out of the book of Deuteronomy. These are typically the books that we like to fly over. And yet Jesus finds them important enough that when temptation comes, that he would fight back against the enemy by quoting the book of Deuteronomy. I digress. Matthew chapter four, verse five. Then the devil took him to the holy city. We're about to see some themes carry on from the last few verses. And he set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, Throw yourself down, for it is written, this is Satan now, quoting scripture, Psalm chapter 91, verses 11 and 12. He says, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up unless you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So Jesus has now beaten the temptation of the lust of flesh, and now Satan comes, and he essentially is tempting him with what we're calling the pride of life. Essentially, he's saying, be arrogant. 
Function in pride. And what does Jesus do? He comes back again, Deuteronomy 6.16, hearkening back again to the Exodus where the people are wandering around. And what Deuteronomy 6.16 in short says is don't put God to the test, right? Don't follow other gods. Follow what God has said. Jesus does it flawlessly. He bows down to no other God. He doesn't test God. And he follows exactly what God wants. Jesus does this amazing that he is the great example in which we follow into out of spiritual demise and into spiritual delight. And what we have is Satan coming and saying, being arrogant, be arrogant, have the pride of life. How often does Satan come and do the same thing, right? Just, just function, you're the guy, right? You do what you need to do and often coming and twisting truth in our face. Satan comes and what he says is true. You're the son of God. If you were to throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple, angels could snatch you up before you were hurt. Jesus would confirm this in Matthew chapter 26. Jesus says, I can call down legions of angels to save me from the cross. And yet Jesus is not here to call down angels. He's here to go to the cross. That Jesus, yes, could have thrown himself off the pinnacle of the temple and angels could have swept him up. And yet he's not here for that. That he lays down his own glory for the fathers. That he puts not being co-equal with God up on the shelf. That he says, no, I'm going to put that to the side. I won't live in arrogance. I won't live in pride. And yet I will follow after what the father wants. I remember a story in Genesis chapter 3 in which Satan comes and he throws some truth in somebody's face, Eve. He says, if you eat of this fruit, you will become like God. There's some truth in that. He says, why? Because you will know good and evil. And Eve is like, well, he's probably right. And sure enough, he is, that when she eats the fruit, she begins to see the knowledge of good and evil in her life. And yet the truth is twisted a little bit, and she chooses her own arrogance and her own pride to become like God. And yet Jesus does not. Continuing on, verse 8. He says this, and again, the devil took him up on a very high, what, mountain, and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory, and he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came. And we're ministering to him. So we've seen Jesus beat the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, and now the lust of the eyes. And when Satan comes, Jesus again, back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, would quote here. And he's like, look, I'm not going to serve you. I'm not going to follow after you. And you know what? I can delay the gratification of instant glory in this moment for my father's will. Jesus knows that he's here on a mission and that his father is here to be glorified through Jesus. And so Jesus lays it all aside. By the way, all of these mountains in which Satan has just offered Jesus all this glory and all this stuff that he sees, these kingdoms and all that, that was Jesus's first that in cre- uh, before all creation, Jesus is in heaven and he makes all things and it says all things are good. All of these things are his to begin with and then man falls and it's shifted into the domain of darkness and now Satan as he roams around on the earth is kind of ruling these things and in the moment what Satan is offering is instant gratification. How many of you have heard that word before? 
that Satan offers instant gratification. Jesus, you don't have to go to the cross. Jesus, you don't have to die. You don't have to be resurrected and ascend to the right hand of the Father and wait for the second coming. You can have it right now. All the glory and all the kingdoms, they can be yours. They were already his to begin with. And soon to be, there will be a day where he comes back and they will be his again. And Jesus denies instant gratification and says, prolonged glory for myself. He says, you know what? No, I'm going to put the mission and the Father first. So he quotes back. He says, I'm going to do what my Father wants. And then I love verses 10 and 11. The sat- Satan comes, devil comes, looks at Jesus, and then Jesus says, be gone. And then in verse 11, and it says, and he left. One of, the, one of my favorite quotes that I had ever read, I read about a year ago, uh, I was reading some commentary on Matthew chapter four. It says this, and this is very encouraging to me, and I hope it is to you this morning. As powerful as Satan may be, in this moment, Satan seems to be very powerful. And as frail as Jesus must be because of the extended fasting and the intensity of temptations. So we've got a strong enemy and a frail in body, Jesus, Jesus vanquishes him with a word. In Jesus' weakest moment, he is still stronger than the enemy. That at one word, he would look at Satan, be gone, and it says what? And he left. That he has to. That we're fighting battles that are already won. Why? Because Jesus, he's in us. He's moving through us. And at his word, the enemy has to flee. And that's encouraging for me today, especially where we're about to go. So maybe you can see as I've talked, exit and escape from demise and entrance into delight. I'm going to break those two statements down for the remainder of our time this morning. Jesus provides an escape from sinful demise. Here's what I, again, don't want you to hear is that Jesus was just a really good guy that gave us a really good example. That yes, Jesus is a really good guy. And yes, Jesus does give us a really good example. But ultimately, the provision of escape from sinful demise is the gospel. It is Jesus coming, fulfilling the law and the prophets, not abolishing it, coming, fulfilling all of the law, all of the prophets, and then him going to the cross for us. The scriptures talk about that uh, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And in that sin, we have now earned death. And then yet it says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That ultimately, the escape from sinful demise is an eternal escape. That when Jesus comes, he dies on the cross and is resurrected. Now we can have new life in Jesus. And now we don't have to die that our eternal state is that with him forever if we know him. And that we can fall in love with Jesus, have an intimate relationship with Jesus, and the sinful demise that was ours that we would call hell without him is now gone. And spiritual delight is in heaven with him. And that one day he's going to come back for his people, and it says he's going to gather us from all over the globe, and we get to walk back into eternity, into new heavens and new earth, and live in a new Jerusalem in the Father's house. And that's what Jesus ultimately has done, not just giving us a good example, though he did, the ultimate escape, the great exchange, our sin bared on his shoulders on the cross. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, though. That's for Ed next week. And though, at the same time, yes, we get the ultimate escape from sin for all of eternity, and delight with God for all of eternity, there now is this daily responsibility to flee from sin. 
that we can follow in Jesus's good example. I'll read these few verses that most of you probably already know. James 1, 12 through 15. This is all about temptation, by the way. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death." Blessed is the man that when temptation comes his way, that he walks away from it. How do we then walk away? How can we then be that blessed man who has neglected sin and neglected our own desires? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 13, Paul would say, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. And typically that's where we like to stop quoting the verse. But... It continues, but with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That when temptation comes by the evil one, because it says God does not tempt, God does not make us sin, but our own desires and the evil one, when the evil one comes, when our own desire comes, what does God do? He puts then the way of escape there. So what does that mean? When that thing pops up on your computer, you need to click out. That when that person calls you to go somewhere that you would stay in, Or when you're staying in and it is causing you to fall and that temptation is there, maybe you should just go. Maybe the most holy thing you can do is just go to sleep. Turn the thing off. Walk away. Often, the scriptures talk about flee from sin, especially that of sexual immorality is what Paul is talking about in the context when he says flee. That we would flee, that we would run far from sin. Jesus would take it so seriously as to say, If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to be a lame man than to walk into eternity. That is hell. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in what? The time of need. So, blesses the man who doesn't fall into temptation, right? How do we then escape? God has offered the way of escape. And then maybe you're still sitting in that moment and you're deciding between what? Sin and escape. Here, since we have a high priest in heaven who is tempted in every way that we are yet without sin, And it says, he co-suffers with us. That word sympathize in Greek means to co-suffer. That Jesus knows everything we went through, go through, and will go through. And he is with us, suffering along the way. And so what does he say? Now that we have a high priest in heaven who knows everything that we went through, call. Call out to Jesus in those moments. Because you can go to the throne of grace. Draw near to the throne of grace. That you may, what, receive mercy and grace to help in that time of need. So call, call upon Jesus. Lastly, Jesus provides an entrance for spiritual delight. Yes, an escape from sin, but more than that, a delight in his presence that we would get to know him intimately. I think some ways that we can do this is what we would call spiritual disciplines. I think this passage talks to us frequently about fasting and God's word. 
And so, to start this portion, I want to give you a quote that I heard not too long ago about spiritual disciplines. Devotion doesn't start as devotion, it starts as discipline. How many times have we began to sit down at God's word for the first time and we, we want to read, we want to do it, but it feels more like discipline than devotion. I know I have. I remember when I first started reading God's word, I picked up the one-year Bible. I started on whatever day it was, August or July, and it was in the book of Chronicles, and I sat down, and I was like, huh, that's a big list of names. God, what are you teaching me there? And I remember going to my high school pastor so frustrated at 17 years old. Why do I need this? And yet now I come to God's word daily, and this is necessary, that I would come to him and taste and see that he is good that I can walk into an intimate relationship with Jesus through what we would call spiritual disciplines. I get to know him better. The Westminster Catechism, the first question in it is, what is the chief end of man? What is the purpose of man's life? Maybe some of you have asked that question. Why am I here? Well, the answer, very simple, to give God his glory. And all of us know that part, right? We're supposed to give God glory. But then there's a second part, and enjoy him forever. That it's not just that God is this glory monger up in heaven that's like, just give me mine, give me what I deserve. No, it says, and enjoy him for the rest of our days. And forever doesn't start when we walk into eternity shore. Forever started when you started a relationship with Jesus. That we get to know him right now. That we can call upon him right now. I'm gonna talk about two, two and a half spiritual disciplines. The first is prayer and fasting. Here's some practical ways in which we can implement prayer into our lives to grow our relationship with Jesus. The disciples had very similar questions that many of us have. Jesus, how do we pray? Jesus, teach us how to pray. And Jesus in Matthew chapter six, just a few chapters later would say, when you pray, pray like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. I think a better translation of this last line is don't let us be tempted and deliver us out of the hands of the evil one. That ultimately, when Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray, he teaches them a prayer of dependence wholly on God. That God, you are big, you are high, you are in heaven. I can't do anything on my own. I need you to give me daily bread, God. Let your will happen. Let your kingdom come. Father, I need forgiveness, so forgive me. God, I can't forgive that person, so help me forgive that person. Lord, there's an evil one who is tempting me. Deliver me out of his hand. It is a whole dependent prayer on Jesus. So when we pray, I think a good way to practically learn how to do so is that we would pray this prayer of dependence. I pray it at least once a day and have for years at this point. That you don't have to say those words exactly, but I think these words are pretty beautiful from the mouth of our Savior. That we would come and we would ask for God's help. I think a second way that we can learn how to pray and spiritually delight in Jesus is that when we read his word and something stands out to us, we would pray according to the scriptures. That these words on the page are good for prayer. That whenever we're tempted, right, and wherever all of these things come, that we would then say, God, would you just help us? Or when we see something in the scripture about God saying, hey, love this person that way, like start praying that way. Well, God, if your word says I need to love this way, help me love that way, simply. Thirdly, I think another way to learn how to pray and to spiritually delight in Jesus is that we pray about everything. That's Paul's words, not mine that we would not uh, stop praying. It says that we would pray without ceasing. How do we do that? I think a good way, right, 
is to throw up some short, quick prayers. They don't have to be this long list of 20-minute long prayers at the end of the day, but that when good, something good comes your way during the day, lift up three words, God, thank you. All throughout the day, God, thank you. And when something hard or aggravating or something comes, lift up another three words, God, help me in this. They don't have to be just those short prayers, but the sentiment is true, is that we would just lift up throughout the day, God, help, God, thank you, God, move, whatever it need be. And here's the last one, and it's going to make you feel really uncomfortable. You ready? That the next way, and I think this is actually probably one of the most amazing ways in which we can learn to spiritually delight in Jesus through prayer, is to pray out loud in front of other people. And I know what you're thinking, but I'm an extrovert, Braden. Come on. I'm sorry. I think it's valuable. One of the most amazing times I've had in prayer was having an 11-year-old pray in front of me. And it, he said one of the most theologically sound statements that have cha- it has changed my life. I'm sitting here praying with this young man named Matthew, and he's given his life to Jesus. And I say, hey, look, dude, I'm going to pray for you, and then I'm going to let you pray and talk to God because he's your heavenly father. This is your heart change. No magic words I could say. And so sure enough, here's what he says. God, I just want to be in your house. I learned more from that 11-year-old than a lot of 50, 60, 70, 80-year-olds. And yet, I've also learned from a lot of 70, 60, and 80-year-olds that every Tuesday, I get the opportunity to pray with our staff at Delaware. And there's this uh, formerly retired gentleman who's come part-time on our staff named Rob. And I love getting to sit with Rob and pray because Rob has gone through so much more life than I have, and his prayers are sweet. So we would pray out loud in front of one another to teach one another how to pray and to delight in Jesus. And I know what you're thinking. Dang it, that means I'm gonna have to do that whenever I get home, right? When you sit down across the meal and, you know, typically you make dad pray. Mom, you pray. Son, daughter, you pray out loud. No shame. It's not that we're praying for the other person. We're just praying to our heavenly father. Tacked into that is fasting. This is uh, spiritual discipline half, right? Fasting typically is along with prayer. What fasting is, is denying something from your body so it reminds you to pray, typically in the context of food. Jesus, not eating for 40 days and 40 nights, or anytime any of you have fasted from food for any amount of time, there is this physical response that happens. It's called a hunger pang because you've not ingested any food into your body, so then your body starts to rumble and hurt, and it is a physical reminder to pray. I know the reality is, though, is that there are medical conditions in which some of you cannot fast from food. So take something else in which you delight in. By the way, I love food. I like really, really delight in food. So for me, I know that's like my stronghold. So it's like I got I to gotta push those aside. And I've made this a, a regular rhythm into my life. And I have over the last few years. Is that, and I got slack on it and I brought it back into my life. But we need to physically deny something for reminders of prayer, whether that be social media, TV, going to the golf course, whatever it is. Something you delight that you can lay aside that is a reminder to pray. Probably something that will physically make you uncomfortable. Right? So, if you are considering now fasting, I would say, if you've never done it before, talk to your life group leader, Talk to Ed, talk to Dustin, Mark, any pastor, whoever. Just talk to somebody. Why? Because Ed is going to give you all of, no, not 
I just want you to be able to have help along the way. Some of the most encouraging times I've had in fasting is fasting along with other believers or having accountability or having someone just walk me through what should I fast about? What does this even mean in my life? Lastly, but I think most importantly is this, is God's word that we would longingly dive into God's word. I think this is the way in which God has revealed himself to us the most. Is that in 2 Timothy chapter three, it says every word of scripture is breathed out by God, the very breath of God in this book. That this book is not special because it has holy written on the spine. No, this book is special because God's very breath is the thing that brought this to life. And now we get to interact with the breath of God. And it says it's good for teaching us, correcting us, equipping us, completing us for every good work in which God has laid before us. So what do we do in this spiritual discipline of God's word? Well, one, we should read it. And that's the easy one, right? You expected me to say that. Two, we should hear God's word. That we would come week in, week out on Sunday morning, that we would go week in, week out to our life groups, and we would let whatever leader, whatever person read the scriptures over us because hearing God's word is very important. It says in Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing comes by the word of God. That when we hear God's word, that this is Jesus' word washing over his bride, cleansing us. Thirdly, we would meditate on God's word. Psalm chapter one, blesses the man who does not walk in the way of the wicked, stand with sinners or join in with mockers, but he delights in the law of the Lord. He meditates on it day and night. He is like a tree then planted by a stream of water and every season he bears fruit and his leaves do not wither. What does it mean to meditate on God's word is that when we read it, when we hear it, we don't just let it go one ear out the other. No, it would stick in our mind and we would mill over it. God, what does that mean for then for me to live that out? God, how do I function in that? And the promise is, is that when he meditates on the scriptures, he then is like, a, is like a tree planted by a river. And that tree, it says, always has fruit and it never dies. That we would spiritually delight in Jesus through meditating on his word. That we would memorize God's word is number four. Psalm 119 verse 11, I have hidden your word in my heart, God, that I may not sin against you. I've hidden it deep. I've memorized your word. What does Jesus do? He quotes out of Deuteronomy. He's memorized the word so that when tempting comes, he pushes back against the gates of darkness. And then lastly, this is the one that's gonna make you uncomfortable, that we would study God's word. This is the one that is most intrusive into your life. Why? Because it's gonna take the extra mile. That yes, reading is good, hearing is good, meditating and memorizing is good. Studying requires just a step further. That when we go read things like Matthew chapter four, we would go look into the original context and we would learn what it meant for the people then and then how does that relate to us now? It's Acts 17, 11 for the scriptural reference. These Jews, talking about the Jews in Berea, were more noble than those Jews in Thessalonica for they received the word, they examined it daily to see if these things were so. Paul has come to Berea and he has preached to the Jews. He has given them God's word and what do they do? They take the word and they say, that's cool, Paul. Then they go back and they study and they examine to see if what Paul was saying is true. First of all, I could stand up here with a microphone and tell you a lot of stuff and you would probably believe it. But my hope would be is that not just believe it, that you would go back and you would study it just to make sure I wasn't out of line. There are many preachers who will stand on a stage and will declare something that is true, and it won't be. Far be it from our church. I think we have great pastors. They don't stand up and preach lies. But filter the content. Go and study God's word for yourself and see if these things are so.
again, I don't say all of these things to make you feel as if you have to go now make this laundry list of, of things to do during the day that you have to be some legalist or some perfectionist or all of these things are gonna make God love me. No, these things have been given to us not for legalism's sake, but for love's sake that we would get to know God in a very real, real and intimate way. We would get to know him. That our escape from hell is good that we can now flee from sin here on earth through Jesus' name and that we get to talk with him. The creator of the universe wants to have a relationship and a conversation with you. Let's pray. Let me talk to us uh, for just a moment. Maybe you're in the room and you've never started a relationship with Jesus. You don't even know what that means. I've talked today about this gospel that saves, that, that brings us out of spiritual demise and into a spiritual delight. The reality is, is that without Jesus, it's not gonna be good for us. But with Jesus, our life changes. That we are washed and absolved of all iniquity and sin and we get to then live with him in a real way. My prayer for you today and hopefully your prayer today is that you would know him. And if that is the case, that you would not leave this place without talking to a, a, a person on our connections team, a staff member, whoever. Maybe someone brought you who's a believer today. Maybe you just need to have a conversation before you leave. But then secondly, let me talk to another group of people. Maybe you're here and you've had a long-lasting relationship with Jesus, or maybe you've already had a relationship with Jesus. Maybe it hasn't been that long. But something I said just landed on you. Maybe there's some sin in which you've not been fleeing from, in which you need to lay down and flee from, that you would give it to Jesus and let Jesus then work through you to help you flee from that. Maybe you've not talked to God in quite some time. Maybe you don't know how. Maybe some things in your prayer life needs to change. Maybe the Lord's calling you to fast. Maybe the Lord has called you to dig deeper into his word. First of all, you don't have to read an hour a day. Just add five minutes, wherever you are. Maybe God is calling you deeper into some next steps. Maybe he's convicted you over something that you need to move forward in. My prayer for you is that you would move. Take the step. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And God, again, we give you all glory and honor for you are the only one worthy of all glory and honor. God, I pray today that if someone does not know you, that they would know you today. They would begin a relationship with you. They would escape from sin and walk into delight with you. And Father, for those of us who do know you, would you move in us mightily and teach us, show us. Let us have enjoyment in you forever. I pray these things. Jesus' name.